Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Owens. Welcome to episode 12 of the CSB SCB podcast. With us today is Dr. Emily McWalter. Dr. McWalter is an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Saskatchewan. She received her bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Queen's University and went on to complete her master's and PhD in mechanical engineering at the University of British Columbia. Following her PhD, she completed a postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford University and then worked as a research associate in the Department of Radiology. While at Stanford, Dr. McWalter was the recipient of the New Research Advocacy Award, which assists imaging researchers in becoming involved with advocacy and policy at the federal level. And since starting her tenure-track position at the University of Saskatchewan, she has secured NSERC funding for research equipment and was one of eight researchers recognized by the Saskatchewan Health Research Fund, where she was specifically awarded the top establishment grant in socio-health. So Dr. McWalter, welcome and thanks so much for speaking with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. From looking at the research conducted in your master's and PhD and then into your postdoc and tenure track position, two major themes stuck out. And the first was the use of MRI to study joint mechanics, specifically joint kinematics and contact forces. And the second one was the use of MRI to study tissue mechanics and disease states in the knee. And these are the two specific areas that we hope to discuss with you today. But before we get into that discussion, there was some terminology that came up a lot in your papers, which seems to be common to this field, but might be less well known to listeners uh, who don't do this type of research. So we read how different types of MRI systems can be used to study joint kinematics. And in your paper about the effect of load magnitude on patellar kinematics, you presented some literature that used open upright MRI systems and closed bore systems to study three-dimensional kinematics. Can you talk a bit about these systems? How do they differ? There are quite a few configurations out there different from the traditional bore that you kind of think of when you think of an MRI scanner. That, of course, is the most common uh, type of MR scanner that's out there. These more open configuration ones are few and far between. One of the earliest ones is what we would call a double donut, and it's pretty much been decommissioned. Now, the the few that were left have, I think, broken by now, (laughs) but that one was actually set up for surgery so that if you thought of a bore with like a cutout in it, so yeah, that's why they called it two donuts, the surgeon could walk, like stand right there and do the surgery. But of course, as biomechanists, we said, hey, how can we look at joints with this? So created kind of these rigs to get the, the knee at the center of that bore and have the person kind of standing up. So their arms were literally on top of the scanner. So that was one configuration that was not meant for biomechanics, but where this open configuration idea started. The challenge with those type of magnets is that was a 0.5 tesla and all that means is the magnet strength when we think of the bore style magnets that we have at most hospitals those tend to be 1.5 tesla or 3 tesla so in canada i'd say we have mostly 1.5 teslas and the newer ones that are being installed are the 3 teslas there are some 7 tesla human scanners as well 
So it's really often with these open configurations, it's a field strength issue. There's another one that's kind of on its side that it's open. So I guess you think of two donuts, but maybe a hamburger would be a better way to describe <laughs> that one. <laughs> Where the person was was whatever you're putting on your hamburger and the buns on either side. So that one, there was also more space to do some knee kinematics or joint kinematics in that type of system. But again, low strength. UBC has a great system that you can actually walk straight through it. And an insert comes out of the floor so that you can raise people up and down to get their anatomy at the center of the bore. But again, it's a low strength scanner. So those are kind of some of the open configurations and how they differ from the the closed bore. And the major difference we see between them is this field strength. What is the maximum strength that the human can safely withstand? This is really interesting. So I don't know that we know that. MRI, we always use this term, no known side effects, because we don't really have any side effects of MR, except if if you're claustrophobic, that can be an issue. There are some preclinical systems that are up at like the 20, like 19 point something Tesla. As far as I know, though, the, the human magnet strength is that 70 is is what I've seen. I don't believe there's anything higher than that. Now, some people get very affected by when you move in and out of this magnetic field. So at Stanford, we had a 70 human scanner. And what I felt personally when I went in is I felt like I was going around a corner when I was moving into the bore. And it was very odd. And I did get some nerves in my eyes would fire. So I get some light flashes when I moved in. So that one, I was very susceptible to that field strength. Like 3T, I never really had any issues with. 7T, I really noticed it. Some people have noticed nothing at 7T when they go in. So it really depends on the person. Nothing in that was damaging or harmful, or but it, it's a weird experience going in and out of the 7 Tesla scanner. That sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a long bore as well. So it felt more tunnel-y than the other systems I've been in. I actually don't know. What is the effect of the strength, could I look at the knee with, I don't know, one Tesla or seven, can I see the same things? Or why would I even need the such higher magnitudes? That's a really interesting question because we often just think of a higher field strength as a better image. And it's just not really as straightforward as that. We have trade-offs between different parameters on the scanner. So if we took a really long scan at 0.5 Tesla, we could get a really good image because we can get enough signal to noise ratio to get a good contrast between the tissues. But we can't just have people sitting in the MR scan for hours and hours, which we know MR is a longer modality anyway, where scans are on the order of minutes rather than seconds, like say compared to CT. So with the lower field strengths, we get lower resolution, we get lower signal to noise ratio. So it's harder to differentiate between the tissues. And say you're looking at something quite small, like very thin cartilage, you might only get a few voxels. We call them voxels in MR because technically we have depth in the slice as well. So it's not just a pixel. We call it a voxel. You don't get enough voxels across the tissue to get a good like morphology of the tissue. So when we go to higher field strengths, we get better SNR, shorter scans, better resolution. And from what we saw, there are two most common types of MRI sequences, which are T1-weighted and T2-weighted scans. And first, what do T1 and 2 stand for? And can you tell us what are some of the key differences in how these images are then acquired? 
Yeah, I'll, I'm going to actually take a different direction with this question. You're right, T1 and T2 are what you're going to hear most common. You might also hear proton density weighted or intermediate weighted scans. This is all to do with relaxometry and MRI. In MRI, all we're doing is looking at the water in the body. We're looking at the, the hydrogen protons in the body. And what we do is when you go in the MR scanner, your protons all line up with the scanner. And then we apply these radio frequency pulses to tip that magnetization out of that alignment with the bore of the scanner. Now, where T1 and T2 come in is when we listen to that signal, relaxing back to that home position. So like, I'll start that again. We, we're aligned with the, the bore of the MR. We apply the RF to tip the magnetization away. We turn off that RF. And then we allow the magnetization to relax back to its home position. T2 is the transverse relaxation. So like the X direction, how fast that occurs. T1 is the longitudinal recovery. So how long it takes to grow back to that longitudinal relaxation that's aligned with that main magnetic field. Now, I don't want you to restrict your minds to that MR is T1, T2, and intermediate weighted. And the way I like to think about MR is to use a pretty common analogy. A lot of people use this analogy is think of MR as, say, a piano. You know that you can play an infinite number of combinations of those keys to get an infinite number of different songs, right? MR, we can play an infinite number of pulses with different timing, and then our image can look different. We can change that contrast just by changing how we play out that pulse and collect those data, all with magnitudes, timing. So T1 and T2 are common ways of doing that, but we're not restricted to that. We can get all kinds of different contrast with MRI, depending on what you want to see. So to your question of why you'd use one over the other, for T1, water is dark. So if you don't want to see the synovial fluid, say, then you might do a T1-weighted image. So for cartilage, we don't tend to do that as much. We do T2 because it's brighter there. But for bone, we might do a T1-weighted image. So it's really going to be what do you want to see, what relative contrast you get based on what song you played in the MR. What type of imaging sequence is then typically used to study the joint kinematics. Yeah, you can actually get away with a lot of different ones, right? You, you probably look across papers and, and people use different things. I think I definitely in my PhD work stuck with the T1-weighted sequence. I was segmenting bone. That worked for me. When I moved more into to cartilage, you often want a fat-saturated image, so the fat is nulled, and you, so you can't see it, which allows you to delineate a bit better between the tissues. I would say, though, We can get the information for kinematics out of a lot of different contrasts and a lot of different sequences. So when I was doing this work 10 years ago, we were, we were kind of doing things kind of in their own path. So the people who were doing kinematics weren't really looking at quantitative MR of, say, cartilage or other tissues. Now that we're bringing things together a bit more, I think people are experimenting more with different contrasts. So you can get more data out of every scan that you take because... MR is long, it's expensive, so you want to really to get as much as you can out of the images. Other types of imaging modalities have been used to study joint kinematics, and specifically when we think about the patella or the movement of it. These include fluoroscopy and computerized tomography. What are 
advantages or disadvantages of MRI compared to these two options for studying joint kinematics? This is a tough one. I'm actually going to back up and do a little bit more history on that. So that's some of the first patellar kinematics was done with a clamp on the patella. So literally they would just clamp and then, and then have motion trackers on that. So you can imagine that would not be comfortable when your motions would be altered. There were other studies that used the bone pins right into the bone and track the patella that way. And then we moved on to more of the biplanar fluoros, the high-speed x-rays, those type of systems. You know, obviously, CT, any x-ray-based modalities are really good at looking at bone, and they're better resolution than MRI. And you can do it dynamically, but you have radiation. So there's an ethical consideration there if you're doing in vivo live work. If you're doing cadaver work and you're just interested in the kinematics, for sure, those fluoro, those radiation-based modalities are a no-brainer. Better resolution means better accuracy when you go to, you know, do your image processing. The advantages of MRI are that soft tissue contrast, that if you want to look at other tissues as well, and that there's no ionizing radiation, so the, the ethical piece is taken away. But the downside is it tends to be quasi-static, like it's sequential static, or there's two studies that I can think of that did some dynamic work. One was in the double donut uh, scanner at Stanford that was work between actually my old supervisor, Gary Gold, and Scott Delp. Their collaboration had a bunch of grad students on that, and they were able to do a really slow from squat kind of press up to standing And they were able to do like a 2D dynamic scan. So you could just get the tilt or the the lateral translation components of the kinematics. Agnes Dontremont from UBC with my old supervisor, Dave Wilson, they did a 3D really slow kind of extension um, in 3D, yeah, in an MR scanner and was able to do some, some kinematics that way. But other than that, like that's really technically challenging. Both of those studies are very technically challenging. And so not really common to see work like that. That's the main downside, right? With your your x-ray, like your biplanar fluoros, you get really great dynamic data. And often you can have a force plate as well. And you can get lots of really relevant real-time information, but you lose the soft tissue contrast. Continuing this discussion with kinematics, two primary variables that have been probed for the study of patellar kinematics are the effects of knee posture and load, which is effectively the muscle force that's exerted on the patella by the quadriceps group. Using MRI, how do you go about altering these variables within the small confines of the bore? You mentioned earlier about sequential static and continuous methods for posture, but how do you control this element of load? Often we have some type of loading rig in the MR right? Some type of pedal that you're pushing on. Um, so that would be an example of a closed chain, some MR safe pedal, which th- that's not trivial in itself. You can't have metal in there or ferromagnetic metal. Any metal at all, though, disrupts the magnetic field, which changes your image. So that's always been a challenge. You've got these rigs where you can press on a pedal, but the person's lying down, right? So they're limited by how much load they can apply. Um, I've seen other cases where instead it's a passive load. So you just kind of pull on the foot and squish that joint as much as possible. That works for the tibiofemoral joint, not so much for the patellofemoral joint, where we're really relying on um, activating the quadriceps muscle to load the, the joint. 
Some people will do an open chain motion where you can apply like weights to the ankle and think of it. Think of the gym when you're just doing an open chain like leg lift. That would be another kind of way to, to load the knee in the scanner. So in the static case, we'd kind of do multiple angles of knee flexion under some type of loading regime. The issue with that is motion artifact. Like I've said, MRR scans are longer. And so having someone stay still in a loaded position is really challenging. Even kind of a little bit of leg shaking will affect your image, right? So that's always been an issue with getting to physiologic level loads. You see 30 to 50% body weight is pretty much where you can be in a closed bore scanner with a, a loading rig in that supine position, or even a, a prone, like you could potentially set up a prone position as well that would work. But, you know, it's really limited that way. That's why the open bore where you can actually stand up and have a body weight or half a body weight, but where gravity's acting in the direction that we want it to act in rather than in the, in the supine position. So yeah, those loading protocols have, are so challenging in MR. The other thing too is our tissues are viscoelastic. They have a time-varying response to load. So when do you load? We've been actually seeing some really interesting results lately in our group because I have two students working using the same methods, but on very different data sets. One has a cadaver knee that we've loaded in displacement control up to about 800 newtons. And we take a scan every 10 minutes and then subtract those scans to see when we've reached equilibrium. And it's usually, it's taking us at least 120. 110, 120 minutes to get to equilibrium. So my other student, she is working with data where it's an in vivo scan and we've applied we're about 30% body weight in a sequential, like we're doing a couple angles of knee flexion, 30% body weight, living person in the scanner. So as soon as we apply that load, we start the scan. Those scans are about a minute and a half. We are seeing such different patterns of T2 relaxation time and contact area between those two data sets. And I think it's a lot to do with the time varying behavior of the load. It was expected in some ways, but I think it's more striking than I expected and is really kind of having me rethink how we load knees in vivo in MR scanners. So. <laughs> It's almost synonymous to like a conditioning load that you apply in vitro. Yeah. And then I question, like, because I've done some work like that too. Like we've done some confined compression testing of meniscus here and deciding what that preconditioning protocol is and then trying afterwards being like, oh, did that affect our results? Right? Like now I'm, it's difficult for me to compare to this other study because theirs was different and teasing out the effect of that preconditioning protocol, I've found to be not as trivial as I had hoped. <laughs> now, you mentioned 800 newtons as a load that you're applying in this recent study that your group is doing. How close are these compression loads to physiological? Like, what type of load are we expecting in running or even like a landing task? Yeah, I mean, 800 newtons was what we could apply with this displacement control. And it was just a straight axial compression in this particular rig. You know, that's about one times body weight in a, you know, 50-ish percentile male, right? So 
we know that in running, jumping, we're going higher than that. And, you know, there's some literature for the patella in particular, where you're going downstairs up to five times body weight, right? And these are also static, not dynamic loads, right? They're not a cyclic load. It's not an impact load. So all of these things are going to influence <laughs> what we're seeing in the scanner. So it's not a trivial problem. And we definitely haven't landed on an answer of how we should do this, especially in MR. You know, if you have a treadmill with biplanar fluoro, well, walking is walking. But the, the MR piece, we're still working on the, the best way to try and mimic, get somewhere close to these loads. And what we've done in our group is after this displacement controlled rig, we have a, a, a load controlled rig where we apply a three-dimensional load. So with that though, you have to use pneumatics. So you have no metal. It's quite the process, but we're, we're getting that rig working to try and get, at least in the cadaver model, get to realistic loading scenarios in the MR scanner. I could ask you questions all day about how we get this data, but once we have the scans throughout the range of motion that's being studied, you have to construct these three-dimensional models of the femur, the tibia, and the patella so that these anatomical coordinate systems can be constructed. So can you briefly take us through that process or some of the algorithms that exist to create these bone models from all these image slices that you get? I don't want to call what I did old fashioned, but it was definitely what was being done over 10 years ago. And no, it's fine. Some groups are still doing that. But so I'll start by saying what I was doing at the time, some other stuff at the time and where I think we should be going or could be going with this. So I put in the hours of segmentation. I put in my grad student segmentation hours. I literally sometimes joke that I did a PhD in coloring because <laughs> I think I added up the hours once and it was like 400 or something really big of drawing lines on MR images. And you can do some kind of semi-automatic with correction. There's, you know, stuff you can play with. But basically I was making outlines, exporting those binary masks. So where the bone was one, everywhere else zero. Import that into MATLAB as a point cloud. And then through some registration steps, be, you know, putting my loaded images, which were kind of lower resolution, thicker slices onto these higher resolution bone models that I created through um, segmentation. That's one way to do it. The other way, well, the other way at the time that people were doing it is using software called Analyze and a bunch of other groups were using it as well. You could get your two images that you wanted to register, like they were, say, at different angles or something, and then there was a box in the middle, and you could just rotate and translate until they were matched up, right? And then you could get a, a homogeneous transformation matrix out of that and use that for your kinematics, right? You still need to obviously create an anatomic coordinate system and all the, all the things, but your registration was done right on the images instead of by drawing and segment, like by segmenting and creating a, a point cloud and, and doing some type of registration. There, you could also use mutual information. So that's like looking at relative intensities in two different image sets. So it could be different contrast and then trying to match up that way. So doing, again, the registration in the image space rather than in the point cloud space. Now, where I think this is all going is machine learning, right? Like you know, there's some really good knee segmentation, both 
bone. And I've seen some really nice cartilage segment, automatic cartilage segmentation recently. We just need the data sets, right? We need the database of data sets to train the models. But I'm hoping that would be more where we would go to, to get these bone models. And then we can use them in all kinds of different ways. In a lot of in vivo biomechanics that uses motion capture, you mentioned it earlier, we typically only track the femur and the tibia without using a clamp or a bone pin to study position of the patella. Yeah. So once you have this model of the patella, how do we, or how do you and your group or others go about defining the anatomical coordinate system of that patella? Like what points are used to track? Obviously you need three non-collinear points, but what landmarks are we typically using to track this? You've touched on a bunch of interesting things here. Like the, re- the reason we don't track the patella mostly in like gait analysis say is because it moves too much under the skin, right? So that's why you need the bone pins with the clamp and things like that. So that's when you go to imaging based measures to get that. I'd say there's two things going on. We, you know, create a bone model from the number of slices we get, and then we have to choose some anatomical landmarks to create these coordinate systems. You're asking me to like mine the depths of my memory for which ones I chose. You probably, you probably looked at the paper more recently than I have. I is usually the posterior point on the patella, a lateral point, a proximal point, a distal point, that kind of choosing some set of landmarks to to create some reasonable coordinate system. But as you know, there's no standard for creating anatomical coordinate systems in any joint, I don't believe. So it makes it very difficult to compare between studies, right? So, you know, I looked for something that, I looked for points that were repeatable and we did do a study looking at repeatability of, of some of the points using kind of little ellipses to the smallest ellipse that captured all the points across successive attempts to identify those landmarks again. And, you know, our repeatability is is pretty good. You know, the overall repeatability was, was down to less than a millimeter for translations and less than a degree for rotations in the methods that I was using at the time. So there are recommended standards for reporting kinematics that were published by the International Society for Biomechanics, <laughs> but maybe we could add the patella to those papers. Can you look at those rooms of fighting? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'd even fight for either, to be quite honest. Like, I, I don't know the right answer. <laughs> we heard a lot about the methods now for studying the kinematics of the patella, and we're also interested to hear about some of the results from this work. So how does knee posture and load affect patella kinematics? Yeah, um, you probably heard physiotherapists talk about this, saying, you know, they're tracking laterally or tracking medially. Or... So that's a, a term that literally is just your patella might tend to sit more laterally in the trochlear groove or more medially in the trochlear groove. And that'll change the contact patterns in the joint. A lot of where that happens is kind of in the early angles of knee flexion where before your patella engages the the groove. So zero to 20 degrees, your patella is sitting very high at that distal end of your femur and isn't quite engaged. Once you engage, your tracking is better. Fortunately, when you're walking, a lot of your motion is in that zero to 20 degree point. So, so that's when the, the mal tracking becomes important. So for the varus valgus group that I was talking about before, so knees, bow legs, um, we saw there was differences in the, the lateral position. There was differences in the tilt. So like 
that would be kind of a, a rotation about the longitudinal axis of proximal distal axis of the patella. That's what I would consider tilt. And then there was a difference in spin. So what I call spin is uh, anteriorly, anterior posterior axis if you're in standing up straight. So obviously your patella is moving up and down as you bend your knee. But if I'm standing in anatomical pose, an axis coming anterior, posterior, kind of right out of the patella, you can have rotation about that axis. And I was seeing differences in that as well. All of that is going to affect contact patterns. But again, the pattern is likely different before it's dictated by the trochlear anatomy and after it's dictated in, um, by the trochlear anatomy. There's also different types of patella. So some people have very equal medial and lateral compartments or you know, a very big lateral, very small medial. That's all going to change the tracking and the tilt angles, things like that, which obviously will affect loading. If someone has a lot of tilt, they're going to have more load through a smaller area, right? And so our theories that aberrant loading can affect like long-term health of tissues then likely start to come into play. But it's it, in the patellar literature, it's, it's interesting because there's this group, this patellofemoral pain group that is often studied. And those tend to be young, healthy athletes, right? And they don't really have evidence of osteoarthritis or anything like that, but do have pain and are exhibiting some, you know, features of maltracking of the patella. And then you have this osteoarthritis group, usually an older group, about half of people who have knee osteoarthritis do have patellar involvement. And so those people will have different tracking patterns, different features of their tissues. So probably their, their contact mechanics and their, their load transmission will be different. So it's, I think, a little simplistic to say, well, lateral tracking is bad, that you're going to have to look at the clinical situation, like is this a young, healthy person with some anterior knee pain, or is this someone who likely has osteoarthritis, so changes in those those tissues. Okay, so this is now the part that I think I'm most excited about. Another aspect of your research focuses on using MRI and to study tissue mechanics and these disease states in the knee. And an interesting fact that I came across from the Academy of Radiology and Biomedical Engineering webpage was that 90% of diseases studied at the NIH use imaging. So naturally, we want to discuss the importance of imaging to study both cartilage function and degeneration related to disease. And from a very brief search, I found that conventional MRI evaluation for cartilage in the knee, so that being the meniscus and the articular cartilage, appears to focus on two main aspects of the tissue status. So the integrity of the surface almost as a proxy for tears and second, the signal intensity as an indication of hydration. But in other work that I came across, the MRI was used to examine histological and biochemical changes to the meniscus before these indicators of macroscopic damage were detectable. So are you able to speak to any of that work or literature and how these more molecular measures can be obtained with MRI? That's actually the bulk of the work I do now is in, is in what I call quantitative MRI. So quantitative MRI um, is the idea that, you know, we often think of MRI as a picture or the morphology that we see. There's so much more to MRI than that. Back to the music analogy, instead of getting one scan, I can get a series of scans and I can control the contrast in those scans. So for example, if I want to get a map of the T2 relaxation time throughout the whole image, I can acquire 
scans at what I call different echo times. So I'm sampling that T2 relaxation curve, which is an exponential curve. So I can acquire one really quickly and then say at 10 millisecond intervals, acquire more images. And I know that the T2 relaxation time follows an, an exponential decay curve. So I can back out my, by my T2 relaxation time by fitting a, my curve to my data and then calculating the T2 relaxation time. Now, there's a bunch of other quantitative metrics we can acquire. So T2 is a very common one. Something called T2 star, which is to do with the type of sequence you use. And it's always shorter than T2, but similar. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> you might have heard of T1 row. T1 relaxation time, degemeric. Uh, I do some quantitative magnetization transfer. There's all kinds of different quantitative metrics that we can get. And what the field is really working on now is trying to understand what these MRI properties of the tissue, because these are MR characteristics, there's a relaxometry characteristics of the tissue. How do they relate to these physiologic properties of the tissue? So one way you can do it is by doing the biochemistry. So I can scan, say, a cadaver knee, do my MR mapping, pull my plugs, go make my tissue soup and do my assays. So usually we do uh, hydroxyproline for collagen and a DMMB for proteoglycan, something like that, and try and see how those contents relate back to those metrics. What we're finding is some studies are better than others in terms of relationships. We're looking pretty much at the moderate range for relationships between some quantitative metrics and these biochemical assays. Uh, part of the reason for that is it's likely that the MR parameters aren't driven one-to-one -one by a certain macromolecule. Right. So if they're not driven by a certain macromolecule, we're never going to have these one to one relationships. So it's going to be more complicated than that, which means we probably have to have multiple metrics of the tissue biochemically, as well as from the MR side, maybe use different contrasts, different quantitative metrics to tease out what that relationship looks like. Also, you'd mentioned histology. So there, there's studies that have compared kind of yeah, just the histological appearance and using, say, cartilage scoring systems or meniscus scoring systems and relating those back to the quantitative MR metrics. There's some that have used like optical to coherence tomography. So like more microscopy style to relate the structure back to these, the, the T2 or like, I think it was such that T2 and T1 row in that study, I believe. But we can also do mechanical properties. Right. So you, you can say do indentation testing, confined compression testing, unconfined compression testing to relate those mechanical properties back to our quantitative MR metrics. Like I said, none of those have come up with one to ones, <laughs> but we, we are still kind of looking to find which quantitative MR properties are most related to physiologic or functional pro properties like biochemical properties or, or Structural property, I guess I kind of, kind of classify them as structural properties or functional properties in terms of mechanical testing versus the biochem or histo. I've seen that you were involved in some osteoarthritis research in your postdoc and in a faculty biography of you, it seems like you've continued down this path with a bit of an interesting twist. And it specifically said that you're examining understudied tissues in osteoarthritis of the knee and those being named were the membranes, the muscles, tendons, and the ligaments. And so this really supports the narrative that OA is this complex, I'll call it a disease, that involves the entire joint. So can you share a little bit more about some of the quantitative MRI measurements that your group is currently focused on in these tissues? 
you're giving me a great opportunity to talk about the work of my PhD student, Lu Meng Chu, who just graduated before Christmas. And he developed this new MRI sequence called FUSE. It's called a flexible ultra short echo time MRI sequence. And what it can do is these tissues that have a short T2 relaxation time. So cortical bone, for example, the deep layer of cartilage, tendons, ligaments. Clinically, we exploit that to see the differences between the tissues. So those tissues appear black on most MR scans, okay? Because we're basically acquiring the image after those tissues have lost their signal, right? The signal is already decayed and then we acquire the image. So some of the tissues are bright and some are dark. With our fuse sequence, we're acquiring images like 0.8, milliseconds, milliseconds, 0.08 milliseconds. (laughs) And so we're able to get signal from these forgotten tissues, I like to call them, from the the tendons, the ligaments. They've been really hard to image in the past. So it's new MR sequences like FUSE um, that allows us to do this. Now, what's special about FUSE is we've combined some different trajectories. We've done some artifact correction right in the sequence. We've added different contrasts. We've just made it a very flexible sequence so that the the user can customize what they're doing. Because like I was saying before, you really want to optimize your sequence for what you're looking for. So we're using this new sequence and trying to figure out what combination of parameters is going to be best for these other tissues to study the knee. And we'll probably be doing the the T2 star relaxation time and maybe some quantitative magnetization transfer to get some metrics about these tissues that really have not had a ton of attention because they're really hard to image. Have you had the opportunity yet to study how these tissues mechanically or structurally respond to the presence of NEOA? Not yet. We've got some things in the pipeline where we we want to start looking at the different groups like ACL injury is a nice early osteoarthritis model. Some knee pain models are good for early osteoarthritis. There are groups out there, though, that have looked at the meniscus, so have seen subclinical degeneration of the meniscus after ACL injury. So a study by Williams and colleagues, they it's one of my favorite studies because they have a, a ton of they have histology in there compared for their like validating their T2 star metric. And then they have a study of three groups, healthy individuals, individuals with ACL injury and no meniscal tear and individuals with ACL injury and meniscal tear. And what they found is a difference in T2 star relaxation time in the meniscus between all three groups. So the people who had the tear had more damage to their meniscus, obviously, because there was a tear. They had higher T2 relaxation times as compared to just the ACL injury group alone. So there is evidence that these ultra short echo time imaging techniques can show difference in these short T2 tissues with disease. Moving on with something a little different. So based on many different affiliations that we see of your co-authors, it appears that imaging research is very multidisciplinary. And we've seen collaborators from departments of radiology, bioengineering, mechanical engineering, and orthopedic surgery. What are some of the typical contributions made by each of these team members in imaging research? 
it's interesting to really have to coordinate lots of people and lots of expertise to do this type of work. So I'm sitting over here in mechanical engineering. I have colleagues in kinesiology, uh, medical imaging or radiology here. We call it medical imaging. Everyone needs to come together and play their part. We need the radiologist to look at the images and say, yeah, this is a healthy knee or to do, say, our, our osteoarthritis scoring. Things like that are really important. We work with them too on different, like what the MR protocol needs to be in terms of what images they need to do the scoring and what we need for the quantitative assessment. I like working with kinesiologists because they often stay on the the more relevant to normal activity, normal motion. I kind of sometimes head down the mechanics route a little too deeply and sometimes like to be with cadavers because they don't move and they don't have, I can control things a bit better, but I always like the, the considerations that kinesiology brings in. Imaging scientists and physicists are so important. Also elect, electrical engineers. So from my postdoc forward, I realized how key it is to have the physicists and the, the electrical engineers who are really kind of thinking deeply about the pulse sequences. Those people on the team are so important to get your protocols set properly. So all the way from the clinical side to the the physics end of things, everyone is required to get this protocol so we get all the data we need to get to do the work. I have one more question before we end. And it's about the light beam. University of Saskatchewan is the only university to have a light beam. Do you use it? I have not yet for my projects, but I right before the pandemic, we were going to start one on the meniscus. Um, there's a great beam scientist over there that I was going to work with. And we wanted to look at the meniscus, like basically collagen alignment in the meniscus and compare that back to some MR and some mechanical properties. And it's an amazing resource. But again, it is technically really challenging to get the images you need on the beam line and takes a lot of work. So it was something we were literally months away from starting up and is still not, we've not got back there yet, but hopefully I'll, I'll get back to a project with the beamline because what it's going to provide for seeing in situ structure could provide a piece that I think is missing from some of the biomechanics and imaging work that's out there. Is it fairly easy to access? It's not easy per se. Like you have to put in a proposal, but they have really good pilot programs. So you put in a, a project, you get assigned a beam scientist, you get given like 24 hours on the beam line, you set up your experiment, collect your data kind of thing. So that's kind of how you start there. And then afterwards, you would then go back and propose other projects. And usually it's a three-day shift that you get on the scanner. So you're like, it, they have to set up the beam for that project, right? So, and just like anyone in Canada can do this. Just look at the Canadian Light Sources website. It tells you there how to how to go and set up a project with them and, and get in there. People come from all over to do their experiments here. So it's not limited to, you don't have to be in Saskatoon with our great weather to, 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 to work on the beam line. So. To end this episode... We have five rapid fire questions for you and please try to answer each in one sentence or less. Number one, what was your favorite thing about living and working in California? I started road biking and I loved the endless possibilities of the work I could do at Stanford. Number two, what's your favorite book? Harry Potter. I love that too. <laughs> Number three, 
if you could win an Olympic medal in any sport, what would it be? I'm going to say gymnastics because it should be biomechanics related. I think gymnastics is one of the best biomechanics sports out there. Number four, if you could spend a day in another biomechanist's shoes, who would it be and why? Scott Delp, because he has an amazing team of people around him and amazing resources to do the amazing work he does. And number five, what's the best outdoor activity to do in Saskatoon specifically, maybe, or Saskatchewan in general? I mean, from mid June to August, it's really nice to, to be outside and we, we, I'm not the huge minus 40 winter person. I don't know if that's what you're looking for in there, but I just like being outside in our backyard in the summer. That concludes our 12th episode with Dr. Emily McWalter. Dr. McWalter, thanks again so much for taking the time to talk with us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. In our next episode, we'll be discussing shoulder biomechanics with Dr. Clark Dickerson from the University of Waterloo. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app.